Hello, and welcome to the year 2024, and to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. So we have often done episodes on the podcast about how we define academic fields of research, right? So how we carve history up into the domains that we specialize in, whether those are by period, by language, by state, or religion, or approach, and so forth. And this is both a very tricky matter and a very important one, because you have to encapsulate the experience of millions of people in one or two words. So field names can't really be much more complicated than that, and yet they are always very suggestive of how we understand the experience of the people we study. So for example, some of the fields that I track are ancient Greek studies, which is named after a people, say a kind of ethnic group, Roman studies, which is named after a state, Islamic studies, which is named after religion. And Byzantine studies, which is a made-up name. So let me delve a little bit deeper into the contrast between the Roman Empire and the Islamic world. The Roman world and the Islamic world. And at first sight, there are reasons to recommend this distinction. For example, Christianity emerged within the Roman Empire. And before it could attain significant demographic size within that empire, it was co-opted by the imperial authorities and turned into something like a religion of state. So Christianity became the religion of the Roman state and was co-opted into it via all of the legal, administrative, and cultural mechanisms of a pre-existing Roman imperial society. By the end of the 4th century, it was being called the religion of the Romans, or the Roman religion. Not too frequently, it was always understood to be Christianity with its own name and its own identity, but it could also be described that way. Not so with Islam. Islam did not emerge within the context of an existing imperial society that co-opted it. Instead, it created its own empire and its own imperial society, which were understandably dominated by the concerns of early Islam itself. Now, you can call it the Arab Empire. At first, it kind of was something like that, in the same way that you could call Christianity the Roman religion, but it's not really the dominant way of discussing it or understanding it, even for people at the time. It was an Islamic empire. And Islam provided the main kind of modes and orders by which its rulers approached the governance of this thing that they created so quickly. So it kind of makes some sense to have a distinction between Roman and Islamic especially when Christian writers very quickly began to align their interests with those of the Roman Empire. And very quickly, other Christian societies emerged in the West that were not the Roman Empire, not part of the Roman Empire, or that had never been part of it. And so Christian history and Roman history were never aligned in this way. But if we look at these labels from a different perspective, we can come to a different set of conclusions. Specifically, whom do these labels describe? Right, so let's do the comparison again. In the Roman Empire, after 212, every free person in the empire is a Roman citizen. This is actually a fundamental law of Roman citizenship, uh, even in the later Greek 
uh, Roman law codes that anyone born within the state is a Roman citizen. So when we say we study the Roman Empire, that label also, in a certain way, captures the majority of the people whom we are studying. It might not always tell us the most interesting things about those people, but it is in this way a kind of inclusive category because Roman law was inclusive in this sense. But this is not at all the case when we study Islamic history, especially the early centuries, the first three or four centuries, depending on the area. Muslims are, at first, a very small minority. And even 300 years later, their Islam is only becoming the majority religion, maybe half and half, depending on the region again. So this is a problem. The term Islamic history puts our attention on a small group of people, and their prominence is valorized by narratives that postulate them teleologically as the force of the future in that part of the world. Let me here add one more consideration. Because this history is configured in religious terms, or we have configured it in religious terms, it's the easiest way to do it given the sources that we have, all of the other non-Muslim groups are also studied separately as religious groups. And because these religious groups still survive, the study of them tends to become siloed. Right? So there's one body of scholarship that studies this Christian group under the caliphate, that Christian group under the caliphate. These are different groups. You know, this Jewish group under the caliphate. You know, and then different types of Muslim groups and so forth. And you end up with a lot of religious silos. This does not happen anywhere to the same degree when you're studying the Roman Empire or the later Roman Empire. It does, but not quite to the same degree. So who, in the end, is Muslim history about? My guest today is Christian Sonner, who is a professor at the University of Oxford. And he's written a provocative um, recent um, article on precisely this question, what is Islamic history? Muslims, non-Muslims, and the history of everyone else, where he poses these questions in a very interesting set of reflections on the labels that we use, the methodologies that they imply, what they allow us to see, what they obscure from view, not by way of necessarily proposing one alternative, but to raise our awareness of about the advantages and disadvantages of the labels that we use, which is something that I think every field needs to do every once in a while um, in order to reflect um, on what it tends to see more and what it tends to see less. <laughs> to, to adapt James Scott's uh, book title, uh, Seeing Like a Field. Right? So there, there is something to be said for those kinds of self-critical reflections. And because the article is designed to spark discussion, I thought it would be great to take him up on exactly that. Uh, and so here we are, trying to make sense of all the asymmetrical ways in which we define our fields and periods of history. Okay, thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. And let's get straight to my conversation with Christian Sonner. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Anthony. 
So before we start with your thesis, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own research, what you published apart from this article, just so that uh, audience can situate you in the field? Well, uh, my main research is the transition from late antiquity into the early Islamic period. Uh, I was trained between both fields, and that's more or less what I still write on. Um, we'll get into this when we talk about the article, but one of the big themes that I work on are relations between Muslims and non-Muslims. Um, at, when I was a graduate student, um, that meant mainly Christians, but the interest in the bigger theme in recent years has led me to study other non-Muslim communities, their literatures, their relationships with Muslims, and most especially Zoroastrians. So my most recent book, which came out over the summer, was, was a product of that research. Uh, it's a book called The Definitive Zoroastrian Critique of Islam, and it's a translation and a study of what is essentially the only Zoroastrian polemical treatise against Islam, a type of text that is extremely common on the Christian side, but much rarer on the Zoroastrian side, and therefore extremely interesting. So that's one area uh, of, of research. Um, I'm in the middle of writing a, another book, a, a much bigger book, uh, for which I was on academic leave for the past two years. Um, and that book, when it's eventually done, is going to be called something like uh, Mountains of God, uh, The Coming of Islam and the Transformation of Rural Society in North Africa, Syria, and Northern Iran. And what that book is attempting to do is essentially study the, uh, the history of well, mountainous areas, areas that were difficult to conquer in the 7th and the 8th centuries, areas when, which once they were conquered often had a tenuous relationship with the central imperial power or whoever happened to be in charge, and the types of religions and, and, and societies that formed there. Um, and in a way, that book is an attempt to actualize the historical method that I lay out in the article that we're going to discuss. So what is it that, how does this world look when we shift the camera away from cities, places like Baghdad or Damascus, which is the perspective from which we typically narrate the history of the so-called Muslim world? What does it look like when we look at rural areas, and, and in this case, the, the most rural and extreme remote environment, um, these mountains. So that's that's what I'm thinking about and writing about at the moment, all within this bigger framework of um, the transition from uh, the late antique into the early Islamic period. Yeah, well, that, now that makes sense, because as I was reading your article, I was getting the sense that you had come across certain frustration, like the model wasn't working for you for the some kind of research that you were doing in the background. And now that makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's dive into it. And first, let's start by uh, what, what if I ask you, what does Islamic history refer to as a field marker? In other words, what what research topic does it traditionally encompass or periods of history? Um, and what does it give priority to? Well, at least in my view, in Western academia, Islamic history is one extremely common, if not the most common designation for the history of the medieval Middle East and adjacent areas where starting in the seventh century, Muslims were the primary political power. Um, there are many ways of describing this world. At the beginning, you can speak about the Muslim caliphate in the sense that from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to Central Asia, this vast region is under the banner of a single empire. As you move ahead in time, it becomes harder and harder to talk about this as the history of the caliphate because it gets divided up and your regional mm -hmm. powers. And so it's people start using terms like Muslim world, um, which is also part of the problem that I tried to identify. But yeah, I mean, I, I, you could probably do a, a more scientific survey of universities and scholars uh, in North America, Europe and elsewhere to see precisely what their positions are described as being. 
my impression, um, uh, based on my experience here in Oxford and many other universities, is that the, the, the field label for this region and this period um, is most commonly given as Islamic history. So that's the way that I define it. Yeah, you cite in your article um, Kevin Van Bladel's paper on the uh, concept of Islamic civilization. Um, I don't know if you know Kevin, but we were chairs together back at Ohio State. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, so I went back and I read that too, uh, because I think they're kind of complementary uh, papers in, in some respect. Uh, but uh, um, anyway, there, there's somewhat different concepts. So let's focus here on Islamic history. And you make some specific critiques about the concept and its blind spots um, or the way in which it obscures a whole lot of historical reality. Um, but before we do that, um, I just wanted to linger on this one point. So Islamic history is a choice to represent a people, a culture, a state, or you know whatever you when a, a series of states or you know whatever by their religion specifically, right? And so, how is it that that choice is made for the quote Islamic world and not for say medieval Christian Europe, right? I mean, we we don't normally call it Christian history when the Roman Empire becomes Christian. I mean, we. Can, but that's not how the field works. That's not how the journals are designated. That's not how positions are advertised, right? So why are these two treated differently where one has a perhaps geographic or state-based approach, right? Like Carolingian or Byzantine or whatever. Um, and the other is defined primarily through its religion. I don't know exactly. I mean, I, I offer a few answers or hypotheses in the article. I think one is that as a result of the events of the 7th and the 8th centuries, the creation of this unitary polity that eventually gives way to a cultural commonwealth that again stretches from the Atlantic Ocean all the way into Central Asia and as the centuries go on well beyond that, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, you have this massive world that has a common elite culture and as a consequence of religious change, there are larger and larger Muslim populations in all these places. So they have a common religious heritage. Um, they're speakers of Arabic, or they treat Arabic as a, as a sacred language or a language of scholarship. They have common religious practices. Um, there are common social practices, pilgrimage to Mecca. There are all these things that, that bind this region together. And so there is a, there is a reason, or there, there is a compelling reason to study these things under a common roof. And I, I think that probably the, the, the unscrutinized choice has been to label them as Islamic societies, because what is it that justifies, you know, studying Al-Andalus under the same academic rubric as say, Northern India in the later Middle Ages, as sometimes happens in these cryptic surveys. I mean, the, the logic that justifies that comparison, that justifies the study of these two very disparate regions as part of some vaguely connected cosmos is of course Islam. So you isolate the, the, what you imagine to be the, the most important um, unifying characteristic. So I, I, think, I think that's what's going on on one front. I think the, the, the second explanation, um, which goes to Kevin Von Bladel's article, which is really excellent, um, is that in academic circles, 
in especially the, the early 20th century, early to mid 20th century, there was a response among scholars of what until that point had been primarily linguistically defined fields, Arabic, Persian, Turkish, etc., mm. to create of the civilizations, the peoples, the societies they were studying, a kind of a civilizational casing and a civilizational profile that could match what scholars had been doing in previous generations with respect to the ancient Greeks and the Romans. So we have classical civilization, we have a whole scholarly apparatus that builds up around this. Um, and people started developing a parallel concept of an Islamic civilization. So the Encyclopedia of Islam, um, whose first edition was published in the early 20th century, the second much more extensive and still authoritative edition published starting in the middle of the 20th century, on now its third edition is the greatest expression of this. The Encyclopedia of Islam is a history of Islam, but it's a history of all of these other things that say other scholars would label as Islamic hate, which have an important but slightly ambiguous relationship with Islam as well as Muslims. So, so I think that there is a, there, just to summarize what I said, I think that there is an academic argument, seldom made explicitly but implicit, whereby scholars wanted to and needed to connect these disparate regions. And the way in which you created an umbrella was defining that umbrella by Islam. And then in addition to that, there was kind of an institutional and historiographic approach that tried to make of this world, uh, make of this world a civilizational model of the kind that had been pioneered in other regions and earlier time periods um, in generations before. So I think I think that's what's going on. I'm sure I'm missing things. Um, and I hope that some of the responses to this article may point out or clarify this context more clearly. Um, but I think that's more or less what's going on. Yeah, I like the fact that um, in the article you point out that the study of like medieval Christian Europe is not that far from a sort of religiously oriented you know approach. Um, it's adjacent to it. It's not like they're two wholly separate paradigms that are used, one for the Christian world and one for the Muslim world, and that you know clearly religion is taken to be like one of the the most important you know. Uh, a research topic, certainly for mid the Middle Ages. And my field, if I define myself very narrowly here as what used to be a Byzantinist, um, very narrowly avoided being identified with orthodoxy in the 20th century because the Romanness had been stripped from it um, lo long ago. And its association with Greekness was problematic because of modern nationalist you know, arguments. And so all it had left really was orthodoxy. And in the 20th century, it, our, you know, my field went all in and it came very close to being defined. In fact, there are scholars who still will do this. They'll say, essentially, this is an orthodox empire. And that's really like all it was. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we we dodged that bullet. <laughs> I mean, that's not fair to either orthodoxy or the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, and it's now kind of we're we're oscillating back to a more balanced point, but it came very close. And, you know, I, I think you can see historiographically, you know, why this might have happened to medieval Western Europe, why it did happen to Islamic history, is I think because these religions scan as proper religions to modern Western European scholars, whereas ancient religions or Zoroastrianism or whatever do not, like those aren't quote, real religions. And mm -hmm. as a result, we have these grand narratives where, you know, religion kicks in as a factor when you have Jews, when you have Christians, when you have Muslims. And so ancient Greece and Rome are republics and democracies and 
whatever. And yeah, they have religion, but I don't think they were any less religious by their own standards than anyone else. <laughs> and I, I don't think that Byzantium was any more religious than any other pre-modern civilization. You know, it, it, it wasn't as religious. As, and anyway, that, that's just kind of, I think there is a bias, bias there for what counts as religion. Uh, but anyway. Well, I mean, it also goes, I mean, just to, just to extend that point, I think it goes to the, 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 another way of saying what you, what you, what you just said is, is that all of this reflects scholarly priorities. It does not tell us what was actually important in the society itself. It tells us what is legible to the eyes of modern scholars and yeah. what those scholars yeah. value in these, in these societies, you know, I mean, it, it, precisely. I mean, I, I don't think that the, the, the societies that were ruled by medieval Muslim dynasties were any more or less religious than any other pre-modern society around the world. But we foreground that in a way that you're right. I think ancient civilizations get a pass because they are the story that matters to modern scholars is democracy or some imagined connection with right. modern cultures, not religion. Not sacrifices to Zeus. No. That, right. That doesn't scan as religion that we need to pay attention to. And what happens then is that because Europe is broken up into these nation states that have their, you know, that created their own kind of ontologies and projected them into the Middle Ages, then it's natural to break Christian history up into those blocks. But when you look at the Islamic world, at least the, the part of it that you study, it, that's not so obvious. And so Islam just, I think, just kind of emerges as the, anyway, whatever. Um See, I'm also, I'm also dealing with the fact that the society that I study doesn't exist. There, there is no nation to advocate for the Eastern Roman Empire as its own. No, whatever. Okay. Um, okay. So let's turn to the core of the argument about why Islamic history is problematic. And so you say that Islamic history can be taken in two senses, right? So the one is just referring to the history of Muslim peoples and their social and political institutions or just the history of the religion itself. But on the other hand, it can be taken as referring to everything that happened in the lands and among the people who were under Muslim rule. And here it's where Islam is taken as the kind of leading, I think you call it the leading spiritual, cultural, or demographic force. And to illustrate this for our audience is like, and you see this in lots of textbooks, which you study in the article, where after the seventh century, all of those lands are just treated as exemplars of Islamic culture, civilization, just as a block. Right. So the, tell us a little bit about the, so you identify certain specific problems with that model. So tell us about those, the, the main ones that you talk about in the article. I mean, I points that I make in the article is that as far as academic culture goes, and just to be clear, this article is mainly about Western academic approaches to the study of Islam. Sure. Uh, a different version of this article would have been a more thorough survey of what academic cultures in lots of other regions of the world had said, including contemporary Muslim majority societies. I do a bit of that, but not too much. Um, I think that for me, in, in, in this sort of academic culture, um, there is not an alternative framework for the study of these regions at this time other than Islamic history. Um, you know, for instance, in my faculty here at Oxford, we have 
specialists in fields like Syriac studies and Zoroastrian studies and Jewish studies. Um, and those are amazing, deep fields. Um, um, but no one holds up those disciplines and those specialties as the way into studying the entirety of the societies in which mm. Syriac speaking Christians or medieval Jews or medieval Zoroastrians lived. Um, whereas that is precisely what so many of us do with Islamic history. Islamic history is a, is, is a great big expansive field who, whether it's stated explicitly or not, seems to me its central claim is that this is, this is the way to study all of society. Um, it's, it's studying the dynasties, it's studying the economy, uh, it's studying demography, all of these, these, these big themes. So it's not, it's not a corner of the society. It, the, the, the pretense is that it's all of society, again, in contrast to um, other academic subfields um, in which you're studying populations that existed in this world, but it, you know, seldom does anyone in these subspecialisms claim that you know, their people are representative of the whole, whereas that is precisely the, the maneuver, the claim um, for many of us who work in the field of Islamic history. Um, so I think that's one point. Another point is that for me, Islamic history is problematic on two counts. Um, and here I'll just reiterate, you know, echo some of the things that have already come up. As a label, for me, it's problematic because it reflects a choice to foreground religion um, as the defining topic of inquiry, as we've just said in the past few minutes, to the exclusion of other historical factors that shape a society. So foregrounding of religion is one thing. And the second thing is, is that it also reflects a choice to foreground a particular religion in a world in which many once existed. Um, and I think on both counts, um, this is seldom scrutinized. And the reality that this is a world that is in fact um, multi-religious um, and in which Muslims were indeed an important part of the population, but especially the further back in time you go, Muslims themselves were a, a small fraction of the population. For that and many other reasons, this, this, this choice um, creates big problems and creates blind sides or blind spots. And you know, my goal as a historian, and I think probably any historian's goal, is to try and understand the society on its own terms, understand the society as it actually was, not the partial vision of the society that I as a modern historian think is the most important, or the partial vision of the society that is bequeathed to me through our texts. So one of the big problems, and I, I don't think a lot of this is necessarily intentional, I think that these are received categories that people seldom scrutinize. I certainly don't think it's malice or a desire to erase swaths of society. I think it's an inherited posture. But um, I think so much of this is basically what we inherit from our sources. So if you're, if you're in the field of medieval Islamic history, if you can call it that, you know, you're trained to read classical Arabic sources and you begin your study of this region with great authors like Atabari, um, you know, probably the greatest of the medieval Arabic historians who dies at the beginning of the 10th century of the common era. When you read Atabari, who writes this universal history, our starting point for the history of this vast region at this important time, you get the impression that his world is filled with only Muslims, you know? Um, so we, 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 and he is representative of so many other authors of his time who in turn shape our impressions of the past. Yeah. So our first cut on what constitutes the first draft of what is Islamic history, which is not our draft, but in fact, the draft that we are inheriting from these medieval authors is itself partial, um, ideologically motivated, et cetera. And at some point, you know, Peter Brown had a nice 
quote about this. He said, you know, when you look at the medieval historiography of this world at this time, non-Muslims are essentially afforded um, walk-on parts. They're like the guys in the back of the play who kind of and exit the stage without anyone really noticing. That's essentially, that's the vision of this world that we get from the sources. And is it any wonder that that is also the vision that serves as the basis for how we, how so many of us as, as modern academic historians in turn represent and portray the world? Yes. Or, or they're outside the caliphate. Yes. Um, yeah. Like I, I read Tabari for them. They're outside. Um, so I, some of our audience might not know that Muslims weren't a majority in their own empire, so the population, um, you know, before a thousand, let's say, you know, AD, something like that. Very roughly speaking, right? It depends on the region, right? Um, yeah. But yes, m m Muslims at the beginning are almost by definition um, a, a small percentage of the tiny, population. Tiny, tiny, yeah. yeah and they grow, um, but yeah, at the beginning there there are a few Muslims. So, could you give us a rundown of who some of the other main groups are? I mean, the, the world that the Muslims conquer in the seventh and the eighth centuries is essentially an intact late antique world. So its social and demographic profile is that of, you know, pre-Islamic late antiquity, at least at the beginning. So when we talk about the former Roman provinces of the East, places like Palestine and Syria, Egypt, northern Mesopotamia, these are overwhelmingly Christian regions uh, with substantial Jewish minorities. In a place like Palestine, you have Samaritans. Um, North Africa is overwhelmingly Christian. I think the last pagans in North Africa are disappearing in you know, the sixth century. Um, you have important ethnic and cultural distinctions, Greek speakers, Latin speakers, Berber populations, but this is a Christian region, same for Al-Andalus. Um, Iraq is a big mix. Um, Iraq was the former political seat of the Sasanian Empire. You have uh, Zoroastrian populations, um, large, large Christian populations, Syriac-speaking Christians, Jews, um, Jews of Babylon. This is the world that gives us the Babylonian Talmud. Um, you have Manichaeans, um, in the former Sasanian territories, um, probably more numerous there than the former Roman territories. Um, as you head further east, more and more Zoroastrians across Iran, um, you eventually reach Buddhist populations, etc. So, I mean, this is a big mixed up world into which Muslims drop um, initially as conquerors, uh, a, a tax collecting military elite. They grow in size, but these populations don't disappear overnight. So that's one of the basic points of the articles is how can we uncritically refer to this as Islamic history and refer to this vast region as the Muslim world, when in fact so much of the population were themselves non-Muslims. So that's a banal point. It will be unsurprising to anyone who's in the field, but I think it bears repeating because it raises this question of historical perspective and, and who is representative, who counts. Yeah. So you surveyed a number of textbooks in uh, preparing for this article. What did you find about the way those groups are represented when it comes to, quote, Islamic history? So the textbooks that I surveyed have different kinds of titles. Some of them have titles like Islamic history. Others have titles like the history of the Arabs. Um, these, are these, are, these are distinct but overlapping categories. Um, sometimes Islamic civilization. So I, I, I collected these titles in kind of a capacious manner. Not all of them are Islamic history, but they are essentially telling histories of Islam. So non-Muslims, as I discovered, and it basically matched what I thought until I sat down and actually looked at these things. There were no big surprises. 
non-Muslims pop up in these survey books at a few predictable junctures. So a lot of these books will, will have some cursory comments on the situation in late antiquity, the situation as it was when the conquering armies first arrived in these places in the seventh and eighth centuries. So there, there is some obligatory discussion of Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, and others. Um, there will often be discussion of non-Muslim populations when these books turn to the question of conversion. How did all of these people mm -hmm. become Muslims? So uh, the question of conversion, the question of the uh, the non-Arab converts to Islam, a group known in Arabic as the Mawali. Um, usually there'll be some sort of discussion of the legal and theological regime governing relations between Muslims and non-Muslims as it developed and crystallized over time, the so-called Vimy regime. So this is where you'll get discussion of the of special taxes, forms of tribute that non-Muslims were expected to pay, the most famous of these being the jizya. Um, occasionally non-Muslims will pop up when you get to things like the Crusades. Um, so suddenly you have Western Christians arriving. The most nuanced books will recognize that the Crusaders stepped into a world in which there were indigenous Christian populations among whom they lived and with whom they interacted and who in some cases facilitated their rule. Often the Crusaders are presented as an alien presence, stepping into an entirely Muslim world. So Christianity yeah, yeah, yeah. is something that comes from the outside, not something that was an organic feature of Levantine society at the time. Um, there are other places, but those are the those are the kind of the predictable places. They are they are they are um, mentioned at fairly discrete moments, and moments that serve to explain the development of an early Muslim community. So the history of the non-Muslims is essentially narrated at, 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 as a way of explaining a separate story, which is concerned with Islam and with Muslims. Yeah, yeah. I actually a few years ago I did a deep dive in Crusader scholarship and. I did come across books where the scholar, the modern historian, <laughs> was surprised to discover that the Crusaders were encountering with indigenous Christians. Not the Crusaders, they're not surprised, right? But like, okay, <clears throat> what kind of a picture have you gotten about the Muslim world that you think that this is, wow, there's still some Christians over there. Um, so I wanted to ask about practice because um, all of these groups they're many and they're large, some of them, but also the Christians, for example, are splintered into like separate churches, right? I can think of four just off the top of my head, but between Egypt, Syria, Mesopotamia. And those churches have their own literatures and histories and are often told by different scholars, right? So there's a different set of people working on the Church of the East, so-called Nestorian Church, the you know, Syrian Orthodox Church, the Copts in Egypt, right? the, the Melkites, um, and a different set of then working on Zoroastrians and Jews. So I get the sense that these fields are all very siloed mm. in, from each other even, right? Um, to the point where like you can be trained in Arabic, but be reading only Christian Arabic texts of this group or only Christian Arabic texts of that group right? or Muslim Arabic texts. So I just get this vague sense that there's this overarching Islamic history rubric that nevertheless focuses on a minority of the population and then a bunch of little silos under it that don't communicate much with each other but have to kind of look at the overall Islamic context every once in a while. Is that an accurate picture? You called it a vague impression. I'd say that's a 
a completely accurate and very strong oh. impression. It's exactly the impression that I have. And I mean, just to reiterate what I said, I think that the, the problem here is that um, Islamic history, as it has been practiced in many places over past decades, is essentially a history of a, a part, a portion of the society. But it's the closest thing we have to an historical casing for telling the, the history of the entirety of this region. Um, so, so it's both particular and in the way it has developed as a discipline, it is a universal discipline or it is a comprehensive discipline. And then you have all of these small siloed subspecialisms, which no one, including the scholars in them, would, would put forward as being comprehensive or representative. So when people specialize in the, history, the literature of the Copts or the literature of the Zoroastrians, they're not attempting to write histories of all of Egyptian society or all of Iranian society, precisely in the manner in which many scholars writing histories of Islam write basically histories of Muslims and, 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 and package them as histories of the entirety of, mm. of, of, mm. of the society. So I think you're absolutely right. I mean, not, not to sound too, you know, my, my goal is not to, you know, be overly negative or critical, um, uh, but if there is a criticism, it, it's meant to go both ways. Um, it's not just traditional approaches to Islamic history that are problematic. It is also traditional approaches to all of these smaller communities, which have, which have basically, due to a combination of factors, have developed in isolation from one another. Um, and uh, um, so, like you said, I mean, Christian Arabic literature um, um, uh, is, it's, is its own subfield that seldom communicates with, um, uh, you know, you know, what people are doing in the study of medieval Jews in, in Muslim ruled lands or Zoroastrians. So, so it, it, if this field is to change and if we're to create or, 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 or push the field towards a more comprehensive approach that enables us to see the society in its entirety and not in its constituent parts, it's incumbent not just on those those of us who, who are called Islamic historians or identify with that, it's also incumbent upon the specialists in all these smaller fields who are doing the, the, the partial glimpse to, to, to open up and read their sources with an eye to these bigger questions in the entirety of society. So the maneuver goes, goes both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting to think about the Roman Empire in this context, as I was, as I was reading your paper, because in the Roman context, I mean, in a certain sense, it's similar in that we... We call this the Roman world, even if there are very few Romans in it at first, they're conquerors. And nevertheless, for those groups that were conquered by the Romans, whose literature we have, like Greeks, for example, that, it, that is a very well-developed part of Roman studies, right? If only we had more uh, information and literature from the people in the Western Empire, like in Gaul and Spain, we, do, we just have none. But I'm pretty sure they would have been, uh, you know, not marginalized into separate silos, I, I think. However, there are cases where this does happen. So like rabbinical literature in mm -hmm. the later Roman Empire is an extremely siloed separate field. And I think it's not, it's just in the recent decade, last decade, when scholars of, you know, um, you know, Jews and Judaism in the later Roman Empire are beginning to engage, well, and vice versa, with like Roman models of doing things like, yeah, these people lived in Roman society. How was their thinking affected by Roman ways of doing things and vice versa, right? Uh, so um, I think the same is true also for Syriac Christianity, 
to a degree, to a degree. It's all just looking at Syriac confessional identity and, you know, the anti-Chalcedonian movement and so forth. And anyway, the, so it's not entirely dissimilar in that sense. Um, I mean, I, I think part of the problem is, is that so much of what we get from late antiquity and the Middle Ages in these regions is confessional literature with theological focus. Yeah. And so if you want to put this evidence, if you want to put this literature at the service of telling broader histories that are concerned with themes other than theology and religion, the concerns that were foremost to these confessional or sectarian entrepreneurs that wrote it, you have to kind of read the sources against the grain, but it can be done. I mean, yeah. the example of rabbinic literature is, is totally spot on. I mean, it's not just, um, you, you know, there have been recent efforts to read rabbinic literature with an eye to Roman society, the, 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 the academic debates that I'm more familiar with is a parallel process or parallel maneuver for Sasanian studies, you know, mm. uh, reading the Bavli, for instance, is a product of Sasanian Iraq. It's preoccupied with concerns that were common to a wide range of different religious groups, not just Jews, but Zoroastrians and their neighbors. Um, and if you extrapolate, you zoom out from that. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the invention of late antiquity as a discipline starting in the middle of the 20th century is about many things, but it was also about lifting patristic texts out of the realm of yeah. the study of theology and putting yeah. them at the service of the study of history. I mean, that's what Peter Brown and his contemporaries were doing at the beginning. Um, and I think that to some extent, this is, this is one way out of this mess. Um, this is one way of, of creating a more expansive field of, of what is currently called Islamic history. Um, which is kind of uh, working around the, the religious concerns of so much of our written material and seeing what wider glimpses we can get and remaining um, not agnostic. What's the right word for it? I mean, not foregrounding the religious concerns of the authors right. um, in, the, in precisely the manner that happened with, say, patristics, patristics into Roman history, patristics into late antique history, or indeed religious literature in the case of Byzantine history. You know, those are all things that the field of Islamic history can learn from. And indeed is happening, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that this is not happening, you know, Islamic historians are methodologically sophisticated, but um, I think it can be done at a synthetic level to get all of these different voices, Coptic authors, Jewish authors, or Astrian authors, and Muslim authors, describing not just the history of their community, but the entirety of the world that they're, right. that they're living. Yeah, yeah, just to become more broader social historians, <laughs> rather than, yeah. you know, priv yes, privileging, you know, one, you know, religious group, and its narratives. Um, now, as for those alternative approaches, you used a term earlier, which was Islamicate um, or Islamicate. And I wanted you to um, tell the audience a little bit about what does that term mean and what was it coined to do? Because I get the sense that it hasn't, it, I think perhaps it was uh, originally designed to solve part of the problem that you're engaging with here, but didn't quite work out that way. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, this is a story with which you have a, uh, an indirect connection sitting at the University of Chicago. Uh, Islamicate was a term that was pioneered by the great Marshall Hodgson, um, who died very young um, and who whose posthumous magnum opus is uh, uh, The Venture of Islam, a multi-volume history of this world, which is both history, but also historical method, models for the study of this region. Um, Hodgson was brilliant. And uh, Hodgson realized that there was 
a, a problem or there were limitations in traditional approaches to the study of so-called Muslim world. Um, he observed that, you know, if there is such a thing as Islamic civilization, and Hodgson is writing in the, the thick of these um, debates about civilizational approaches to the study of history, I'm thinking of Toynbee and Will and Ariel Durand, you know, this was in vogue in the middle of the 20th century. So his question is, what is Islamic civilization? What are the possibilities and limitations of this? So he, like me and others, recognized that Islamic civilization is made up of many um, elements, constituent parts that were not straightforwardly Islamic or Muslim. Um, and so he, he coined this term Islamicate as a way of describing kind of features of a society um, that was shaped at a very deep level by Islam, often ruled by Muslims, large Muslim populations, but were not confessionally Muslim. So the example I give in the, in the article, and it's not necessarily an example that um, Hodgson himself gave, but you could have a Bible manuscript that is produced in medieval Iraq, and that Bible manuscript can be Islamicate because it is using artistic motifs and techniques that mirror what Mus the manner in which Muslims are illuminating Qurans, that kind of thing. So it is, is a product of a, of a cultural milieu that is dominated by Islam, but it is not confessionally Muslim. Mm. Um, and Islamicate was his riff on terminology that was very widespread in other corners of history. So Latinate, for instance, or Italianate. So you can have Italianate architecture. I think that's the example that he gives in the book. You can have Italianate architecture in the time of the Renaissance, which mirrors um, which mirrors the style of great actual Italian architects like Palladio, but you find well outside of Italy itself. So that is Italianate, not Italian. So Islamicate is something that is at some fundamental level connected with the culture produced by and for Muslims, but is not confessionally marked as being Islamic or, or Muslim. Um, so I think Islamicate is a lot better than is Islamic. Um, um, it recognizes the problem and proposes a solution my beef with Islamicate is that it still um, assumes that Muslims and Islam uh, are at the center of these mixed societies and deserve to be studied as such to the exclusion of many, many other constituent parts. So the example I give in the article is that, um, you know, we don't talk about the cultural production of Jews in medieval Europe as being Christianate, but by Hodgson's logic, one could. You know, so, so yes. something about Christian, it sounds off and possibly even offensive. Yes. But um, Islamicate doesn't sound the same alarms, and I think it should. So I, I think although it's about expanding the definition of Islamic culture and creating a narrative that can accommodate and give visibility to other groups who are not Muslims, ultimately it engages in the same argument and advances the same argument. It assumes a center that, at least in its own time, may not have been the center. I'm just not kidding. I think this is a multipolar world. And this assumes that for all its flexibility and breadth, there is still a center. There's a pole in the middle that counts more. And that 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 is the pole of Islam. Yeah. So let me give you a parallel example that I thought of and then a counterexample. So we do talk about Hellenistic Jews. That doesn't seem to be a problem. Like I, I'm not aware of any you know, theoretical argument that this is either offensive or problematic on you know, any scholarly grounds or whatever. This is referring to either Jews in the Hellenistic period, but especially those who are writing and speaking in Greek, you know, like Josephus and Philo and a lot of others. So I think that that is strictly equivalent to Christianate Jews, if we were to call them that, right? Um, and the counter, not a counterexample, but here's what happens if you avoid that kind of terminology. But, and it causes other kinds of problems. So in my field, we have like 
let's say, post-Roman Orthodox people who lived under the Ottoman Empire, right? We don't call them Ottomanate. <laughs> Their art, for example, and literature and so on is called post-Byzantine. Post-Byzantine, right. Which is terrible, right? What post-Byzantine does is segregate like Orthodox Christian, Greek-speaking Christians who are living in the Ottoman Empire from their Ottoman context. And I, I'm actually going to, I'm thinking of doing a separate episode, uh, possibly with Emily Newmeyer on this, because she's written about it. Um, so you kind of split Ottoman society into things that are Ottoman and things that are post-Byzantine. And even if they're, they're across the street from each other, they don't communicate. Whereas I, I'm not advocating for Ottoman aid, but whatever having the same term for them all at least integrates them into the same society. But you're saying maybe a different term? I don't have an alternative term for this. You know, I, th I think part of the problem is that we're perhaps trying to paint with on, on, on too big of a canvas. So is Islamic works as a unifying term for this vast region right. that I mentioned several times. Um, in, in a way, this is this is one of the best parts of my job. I love that um, my university expects me to teach a history that stretches from Western Europe all the way into Central Asia and well beyond. I mean, that, that's amazing. That is a, that is a gift and an opportunity, and I love it. I, I'm con I constantly learn because I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm charged with teaching this thing called Islamic history. But at the same time, it's an awfully big canvas, um, and it assumes a unity that may not have existed at the beginning. So, the, what is an alternative approach? That we have scholars of the Middle East, we have scholars of Egypt, we have scholars of North Africa. We have scholars of Arabic-speaking regions, and then scholars of Persian-speaking Persian regions, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there are many ways of dividing up this so-called Islamic world in units that are um, more intelligible from the perspective of culture, more neutral from the perspective of, of, of politics and religion and all of that. So yeah, what's the, what's the alternative? I mean, um, it, it, you know, you could define it by dynasties. I mean, that's, you know, you can talk about these people as Ottoman Christians, and that foregrounds the dynasty that happens to be in charge. And mm. you know, the problem with dynastic approaches to history is that it's just another way of um, shining a, a brighter light on elites than everybody else. But but mm. you know, at, at least taken neutrally, um, it's um, it's a way of studying the entirety of society that happened to be under the rule of this people. Maybe that's one thing. Maybe you can focus on language. You can say I'm interested in Greek-speaking populations under Ottoman rule. But of course, these these were polyglot societies. Um, it's an it's an error of modern peoples to assume that you know they, any of these groups were defined primarily by language. I mean, this is the problem, for instance, the study of so-called Arab Christians, uh, Arabic Christianity. I mean, you know, Christi Arabic was one of a variety of languages used by nearly all of these churches. Um, you know, in Egypt, you have the use of Arabic in some contexts and the continued use of Coptic and others. Um, in the Levant and Mesopotamia, it's, you know, Syriac alongside Arabic. So Arabic is, is both a neutral category, but also a limiting category. So um, I think one of the, you know, perhaps fair criticisms of the article is you identify the issues with Islamic, but what is the alternative term? Um, and I, I, I can say, I don't have a good argument. Um, 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 I don't have a good alternative. Um, and, and maybe there doesn't need to be an alternative. Maybe maybe the problem is that we've had too many of these vast sweeping terms uh, and we need to be doing history on a more contextual level that looks at regions and groups of people and themes. Yeah, I really appreciated your candor about this. This is a very difficult problem and one that I should acknowledge that I don't face <laughs> because I study a particular state. Like, I, I don't have that kind of um, you know, 
world. Now, some people might want to spin Byzantium out into a world, and that's fine. You know, you can listen to those arguments. But, you know, as a historian of a particular society with its institutions, it's very easy to find on a map that it's here, but that's not there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I take myself as its historian to be responsible for like everybody living in it and have, you know, have, have advocated and written against the sometimes exclusive emphasis on Greek as as you know as our guiding star for what materials to study in terms of text in terms of communities right whatever um but there are questions of practice that at some point need to be resolved in other words that they have real world consequences so let's say that your article is making the case that scholars should be more aware of these problems in the decisions that we make about how to write the history. And, and I think you're exactly right about that. But what happens in a job search, right? So does the person studying, you know, Arabic speaking Christians have a chance in a job that's advertised as like Islamic history or Islamic world or Islamic civilization, right? And, or, or in, in journals or in who gets grants for this or that, right? In other words, that sensitivity, I think, needs to extend beyond the practice of scholarship in our articles and books, but it needs to be part of a kind of field level discussion about, you know, careers and who gets hired and who gets grant money. Um, and, you know, that's, that's, that's more difficult to do, I think. This is where rubber hits the road, and I, yeah. I, I don't say anything about this in the in the in the article. Uh, but in some ways, I think you know maybe the article is 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 ahead of where the field is currently. I think in other respects, the argument I make is already one that has been taken up by lots of people. Uh, I think that there are a lot of people who may read this and think, "Oh, this is basically what's happening." Um, I mean, if you take job searches as a as an example, um, you know, I, I can't allege to know you know, hiring trends in my field across all countries, but I follow the situation here in the UK and the US uh, fairly closely. Mm. And um, and there, I think the approach that I'm suggesting in the article um, seems to have traction already. I mean, you're at the University of Chicago. Um, Cecilia Palumbo mm -hmm. uh, was hired a few years ago um, to succeed Fred Donner when when he retired. And Cecilia is an, Cecilia is an excellent historian. She can do lots of things. Um, at the center of her research, as I understand it, is this question of the earliest relationship between Muslims and Christians in Egypt, uh, as seen through documentary sources? Yeah, um, I, I, you know, my hiring at Oxford um, almost seven years seven years ago um, is, you know, itself perhaps an indication of where the field is going. Um, you know, my my job title here is associate professor of Islamic history, so I was I was charged with you know teaching and researching in this field. Um, and as I explained, my research is about the history of Muslims, but it's equally about the history of kind of everyone else, or at least the mixed society that all these groups inhabited. Um, and my predecessors who held this job were also historians who were interested in this. So people like Chase Robinson, uh, Robert Hoyland, Patricia Crona, um, these were all scholars whose vision of early Islamic history or the early Muslim empire was one that saw the history of Muslims uh, uh, as being uh, part and parcel of the history of their non-Muslim subjects. So maybe Oxford has a culture of, of slightly different approaches, but um, uh, I don't think that 
the textbooks and the survey books that I survey, uh, that I summarize in the article, are necessarily representative of the way things are right now. I think here there might be a distinction between um, what you put in a survey book, which is deliberately broad and sweeping, and the direction of, of cutting-edge scholarship. Here there may be a gap. Um, but I think that for despite the, the problems as I've tried to identify them, I think when rubber hits the road in the manner you're talking about, there are very encouraging signs that the field of Islamic history is already opening up to this approach that favors a plurality of centers, a plurality of literatures, linguistic traditions, all of these things. So on that count, I'm very optimistic. I mean, maybe, maybe things are going this direction anyway, but I don't necessarily think that what's happening at the University of Chicago or here in Oxford or Princeton or any of, any of a number of other places where I think this um, approach has, has found favor. And um, uh, I don't think that those places are necessarily representative of, of kind of the conversation and the feel as it exists across North American and European universities. Well, I was hoping I you would. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping you would mention those cases. And that's kind of why I asked the question, because I don't have an insider's view of these developments as you do. But I, I was aware that this was happening. I just didn't know if someone like you would take it as an optimistic sign. Uh, but, I'm, I'm and, it's a very optimistic sign. And I think for that yeah. reason, some people may say that this is this argument comes uh, too late. It's already happening. What, what, what fuss are you making? And I and I maybe take that point, but I, I, I'm commenting on the way that things have been done historically. Um, and perhaps are still happening in some corners of academia. And so I hope it still has some merit. I don't know if it's already happening or whatever, but I think the case needs to be made to a general audience, English Historical Review or podcasts like this, because not everyone has the kind of insider's view um, that uh, you know other readers of your article might have had. So we can't assess how fields are changing from the inside. And sometimes we're just one day it's announced to us that from from this day on, it will not be called Byzantium, but the Eastern Roman Empire. <laughs> Spoilers. Anyway. Okay. I also wanted to mention, because um, we're running out of time, but I just wanted to mention that your article also talks about the diversity among Muslims that is sometimes occluded um, in the construction of Islamic history with sort of preference to Sunni and the tabarization, as you mentioned it, of the kind of this is the, the, the dominant narrative. Um, so that's also part of your argument, um, which I was planning on talking to, but we kind of ran out of time here. So I just wanted to thank you in conclusion for writing this and for coming onto the podcast. I'm I'm kind of drawn to these kind of field critical reflections these days, I don't know, maybe because I'm producing one of my own. Uh, so it was really lovely to read this. Well, thanks. I, I think the article has maybe succeeded in part if it has um, attracted the attention of someone like you, Anthony, who is uh, an interested outsider to to this field, and, and and hopefully some of your readers who will maybe see resonance in this article for debates in their own fields. But I, I'm not someone who thinks that polemics are worth it for the sake of polemics. I think if, if polemics can be productive sure. um, and prompt people to rethink the way in which a field of history is organized, then they're useful. Um, and, and, and that's my goal here. And uh, if there's a takeaway for scholars generally in, in other fields that have nothing to do with Islamic history or whatever we call it. It's that, you know, I think terminology matters. Um, sometimes it can be uh, purely semantic, but often, you know, these terms are loaded and they, they, they create our horizon, they set our horizons as well as limit them. Yeah. And, and that's the basic argument of this article. There are implicit uh, limitations on our historical horizons by using this term. And my goal is to open them.
Well, yes, because the subtitle ends with, and the history of everyone else. And when I saw that, I thought, well, that includes me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Christian, thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, Anthony.